Bubbles are back and there's nowhere to go. Or is there? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. Right here next to me, David Hansen, and our special guest, Morgan Housel. Though I don't think you're such a special guest anymore. I think of you just as a guest. A friend. A friend of the show. Just a guest. Whether I'm wanted show, or not, Morgan I'm just Housel. a guest now. No, I, I like friend of the show. All right. Sounds good. All right, guys. I've heard that downtown, Downton, Downton, as I've been told yes. that it's pronounced, Downton Abbey, season five, maybe the last. What character will you guys miss the most if Downton is no longer on TV? I, I only watched one episode, and I didn't get hooked into it, so that's all I've ever watched. But I was talking to someone else the other day. We are talking about even for the greatest TV programs, season six, seven, eight, that's pretty much the cutoff. You're done after that, so it doesn't surprise me that they're going off there. David, is Sherlock Holmes on that show? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I've never watched it. Countess of Grantham and her pluck—that is the right answer. With that, let's move on to the headlines. First headline of today: We've got the New York Times. The bubble is back. I think there should be a comma and baby there. The bubble is back, baby. Uh, so the article is about the housing market, the prices surging, and how this is this is the start of the, the next housing bubble, and it's all going to crash, come crashing down. What do you guys think, Morgan? I think it's maybe that's possible in some regions. I think by most regions nationwide, if you look at it on a broad scale, housing valuations, price to income or price to rent, look pretty good. But I think the bigger point is let's say we are in another bubble and prices are going to crash again. Probably not as much as they did, but let's say prices fall 10%. The most important thing is what does that do to you? As a homeowner, what do you do? Do you freak out and sell? Are you going to, you know, is your net worth going to be wiped out from that? If that's the case, then that's a problem. But I think for most long-term homeowners, this is just like stocks. You should accept some volatility once in a while. If the value value of your home goes down 10%, that, that shouldn't bother you. If it does, you have a problem. David, thoughts? I think this is kind of like one of Morgan's favorite biases out there, <laughs> recency bias. Everybody looks at the last housing crisis and they're saying, we're going to have an- another one. It's just, it's a fact. It's going to happen again because it, it caught us all by surprise back in 2008, 2009. So we're saying, oh, it's just around the corner. But he points to that the housing prices are increasing faster than rent. Fine statistic, but it's just one statistic isolated. I think it, we're probably not near a bubble. Right? Yes, the article does point that out. It says between 2011 and the third quarter of 2013, housing, housing prices grew 5.83%, precision there, again, exceeding the increase in rental costs, which was 2%. What's interesting is that the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, that was the nadir, that was the, the, the very bottom of the housing crisis. So what we've seen is essentially the total extent of the bounce back. Shore Home Price Index uh, was at 198 in 2006. That was the peak. Fell 42% before the 18% recovery we've seen. So it's still 32% below the peak. It's a little bit premature to say that this is the next bubble. When when you've had home prices fall 42%, I think you should expect some sort of a rebound at the bottom, too. I think that's what you would expect to see. And that's when you... Cash in. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, David, next headline. Next headline is from the Wall Street Journal. U.S. bank stocks regained their allure. No one would have thought that would be a headline a couple of years ago. Now, U.S. bank stocks, everybody wants to buy them. The big guys they talk about in here, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup even. Morgan, are you more interested in the bank stocks than you were a couple of years Not ago? Not necessarily, but just because I don't follow them as much as other people or maybe as much as I should. But I think there are some... Uh, anchoring on here when you're talking about bank stocks have regained and rebounded. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've gone up a lot since the end of 2011 when a lot of them bottomed out, but a lot of these stocks are trading at the same level they were in mid-2009, late-2009. So it's, it's really a matter of perception of you know, what a rebound is. 
most of these bank stocks, some of them I should say, are still trading significantly lower than they were in 2006, 2007. What do you think? Ferocious bounce off the bottom. Uh, but yeah, like, like Morgan said, the valuations for the bank stocks, particularly the biggest bank stocks, are still not very high. And, and, and I'll point out Citigroup in particular, which you mentioned, even Citigroup has been coming back. Mm-hmm. This is one I've, I've slowly come around to the story going on over at Citigroup. Uh, and I just recently added to my own personal position in, in, in Citigroup. It's still trading below tangible book value. And, and I think with the leadership that's in place there and the position that Citigroup has on a global basis, I think that's a very compelling valuation despite the recovery. You love that Citigroup. I do. do. All right, final headline of the day. We're going to Bloomberg, and we've got Watt at FHFA seen as enigma in Fannie Freddie market. David, we've got Mel Watt Mm -hmm. coming in to uh, lead the FHFA, controlling Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He's already made waves by saying that he's going to put off these fee increases that were planned at Fannie and Freddie. Does this change the picture for investors at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? It's an interesting question. I think you can convince yourself it's good, and I think you can also convince yourself it's bad. So I don't really have a clear answer in terms of what this means for the investors. Why would it be good? I'm I'm having trouble considering why this would be a good thing. I think you could convince yourself that if he comes in there and remains the status quo, does not shrink the footprint of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, keeps the kind of business as normal, status quo, maybe the institutions stay where they are, and eventually the profits keep rolling in, and it gets to a point where... They have to give something to shareholders. So I think you can convince yourself of that. But you can also say that the president has said that he wants to wind down these two institutions and basically give shareholders nothing, and the president picked Mel Watt to run this position. So I don't really know how it shakes out. Um, I think you can convince yourself either way. So I wouldn't be trying to make a decision based on this. Thoughts on Fannie Freddie? Are you investing your retirement in common shares? I'm not. uh, Definitely not. My general thoughts on Fannie and Freddie is that I would probably bet on the status quo because the U.S. financial system is so addicted to federally guaranteed 30-year fixed-rate mortgages that would not exist without those GSEs. The private banking system would never lend a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. They wouldn't do that in other countries. Those, that's, that's a joke to even think about mm-hmm. that. So we're, we love them so much, we're so addicted to it, that I, I have a feeling that whether they're called something different or if it's in a different form, we'll have some sort of Fannie and Freddie for a long time to come. All right, over the break, while we, while we were away, while we were away from the show, we got a lot of great emails from our uh, viewers and listeners. So we're going to do an extended mailbag today. We have an email address, WTMI at fool.com, that, uh, that listeners and viewers can email. And we're going to visit some of the emails that we got over the break. So the first email of the day comes from Mark Wicks. Mark, uh, we're going to take part of his question. Uh, there have been years of talk about money sitting on the sidelines. While some money may have come back into the market, and many today talk about the market being fairly valued and nobody wants to overpay for a stock, are those still on the sidelines out of luck? Where are they to invest? With the chatter about a 10% to 20% possible correction, some mutual funds are increasing their cash. Yakman Yakman is carrying 20% cash, for example. Uh, Let's start with you, David. Uh, What do you think here are those on the sidelines out of luck? First of all, we always hear the term a 20% correction, and that would be assuming that current levels are, are wrong today. So, I don't know, that's, you can't predict a 20% correction. I don't think people are talking about it. People have been saying that since March of 2009 when stocks have doubled since then. So I wouldn't be worried about that, but it also depends on, as an investor, are you out of luck? Well, it depends on your time frame. If you're investing for the next 50 years, 
it's fine to be investing today. I'm pretty confident that you're going to build net worth over time investing for 50 years. If you're investing for a month, maybe you are out of luck, but that's no different of just rolling a dice. Morgan, concerned? I'm not concerned. I think we are going to have more 20% corrections in the future. We know that, but whether we can predict them and when that's going to happen next week, next month, five years from now, we don't know. What I will say, and this is a technical point, tangentially related to his question. Okay. There's really no such thing as money on the sidelines. I think that's a misnomer. If someone buys $100 worth of stocks, somebody else sells $100 worth of stocks. And there's really never money going in or coming out of the market. It's just the marginal price of what people are willing to say, of what people are willing to pay, I should say. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think if you, like David said, if you're a long-term investor and you've got years or decades in front of you, I think it's fine to invest right now. But you should accept volatility is going to happen and there's really nothing you can do to mitigate that. Consider that over the past 10 years, we've seen one of the worst financial crises since the Great Depression. Uh, beginning of 2003, the S&P was at 908. We're at more than double that level today. Go back to 1993, we've got the internet bubble bursting and the financial crisis. Uh, at the beginning of uh, 1993 uh, versus today, the S&P is four times that level today. I think that's where the opportunity is. The opportunity is in looking out over the long term. Uh, next question, David. Next question is from Ben. He says, hey, I really like the show, and you seem to talk about fundamental analysis only. Why the selection? Doesn't technical analysis give high returns with low effort? And that's from Ben. Matt, do you use technical analysis? I'm going to punt to Morgan. I'm going to let him start this one. <laughs> I think there's a Warren Buffett quote. I, I might be butchering this, but I think he said something to the effect of when Warren Buffett was young, he, he tried technical analysis, and he realized it didn't work when he turned the chart upside down and got the same answer. So that's, that's what I, I, I don't there, – there might be people out there that, that have some trick, some technique that works for them. I don't know of any evidence of people using technical analysis and making money over the long term. I, it, just, it just really doesn't – seem rational or logical to me. There is, there's an attraction to me of the way some people describe the reason that they use technical analysis and that it's a, a psychological thing. That they're, they're looking at the way a, a stock is moving, looking at the way the chart is developing, and it's the market psychology that they're trying to read. The problem is, is that, like you said, I don't know of anybody that's actually making, building long-term wealth using technical analysis. So it's just, it's something that I've dabbled with, I've looked at in the past, because I don't like to dismiss anything out of hand, mm-hmm. but I wasn't able to find any evidence that this is really something that, that can work over a long you know, period of time. I, I think to the extent it does work, as you just alluded to, if you talk about something like a head and shoulders pattern, that sounds ridiculous. I don't know why that would ever work. But if there are 10 million people out there that are following a head and shoulders and they're trading around it, well, sure. then it might work. Self-fulfilling. If you're going to have all these people selling when you hit X level and buying one, then it might work. But then that's not necessarily technical analysis that's working. It's market psychology and trying to figure out what other people are doing and trying to get ahead of them that works. So. All right. I don't use it. You don't use it. I don't use it. That's, it. It seems like a way to very short-term price gains, and if you're planning on holding a stock for 10 years, it seems silly to worry about getting in at 30 cents cheaper or some, based on the chart. Uh, so, no, not for me. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, let's go to the final question of the day for this one. This comes from uh, Rainier. I hope I'm pronouncing that Might correctly. Might be Renee. Renee? There you okay. Go. Uh, I opened a Roth IRA to do myself some investing and I'd like to put in the maximum every year and invest it in index funds. I have a Schwab S&P 500 index fund, international index fund, and a small cap index fund. My first question is, are these three indexes enough? Should I add any other index fund to the mix? 
Second, what proportion of each index should I consider? I currently have 60, 30, 10. That's small cap, uh, S&P, small cap, international. Morgan, thoughts? My, my first thought is, yes, that's a great allocation. Even in, in those, uh, those, those three numbers that he has, and that, that makes sense. Something I'd say about those three funds, though, a lot of those funds have a very high correlation to each other. So even though it, it might look like you're getting good, a, a good mix uh, of funds, a lot of those funds are going to move pretty much in the same direction over time. You'll have a little bit of divergence here and there. But you know, if you take the S&P 500, 500 companies, just the top eight companies have like a 98% correlation to the rest of the index. So just as long as you own an index fund that owns those big names, which a lot of those funds do, whether it's an international fund, you're going to own... Uh, you're going you're gonna to own, own IBM and, and whatnot. These companies that do business all over the world, uh, you're really not making that much of a difference. So over you're time. saying buy, put all of your money into IBM and call it a day? Uh, yes, but no. You know, but but really, you know, I, I think if most people own the S and P 500, that's that's good enough diversification for almost anything. David, um, yeah, it seems fine to me. Again, we can't give personalized advice for an A there, but yeah, I think if you're an indexer, it's fine. I wouldn't be too worried about, oh, 30% there, 20% there. Over the long term, I think you'll, you'll be fine. So uh, my question actually for Morgan is, since they are, a lot of those are correlated there, as an indexer, a big part of your portfolio is our index funds, yep. how do you kind of diversify that in terms of if one goes up, the other one doesn't necessarily So mo- most of the index funds I own is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, which is as diverse as you could possibly get. I think it's 6,000 companies, large cap, small cap, uh, U.S., international. I mean, it owns everything. You're basically owning a slice of the global economy. That's mm-hmm. the best way to think about it. And that's as diverse as it gets. If you had all of your money in that fund, it might sound crazy to have your money in one fund, but that is as diverse as you could possibly get. All right. That's one of the... Comments I was going to make was the the Vanguard uh, total market is a one thing to consider in terms of making it simpler. The other thing is, is in, in my own indexing, I split my international between emerging markets and developed markets rather than just having one uh, overall foreign fund. Uh, that foreign fund that uh, that was mentioned, may I, I'm not even sure what it was, but it may or may not include emerging markets. Um, the other thing is that I generally think that we have a home bias and point taken about the the correlation between uh, the different funds, but a 10% allocation to international, I have a higher, uh, fair deal higher allocation than that, just because I don't want to be overly weighted to the U.S. It's a big world we live in. U.S. is the largest economy, but... I would say to that, too, in the S&P 500, almost 50% of revenue from those companies is from overseas. So even though they're American companies, that is... That is half international that you're getting. You know, when you own companies like Exxon and Microsoft and Intel, those companies do a ton of business overseas. So that is in itself almost an international firm. Right, but there's a different dynamic to stocks that are yeah. uh, companies that are based in the U.S., stocks that are traded on U.S. Uh, exchanges right. versus ones that aren't. So uh, just a thought. Um, moving on to our game for today, we have a little making the grade. As a reminder to our viewers and listeners, making the grade, we present a scenario, we draw a beautiful artistic rendering of our thoughts on that scenario. Stick figures. Uh, beautiful okay. artistic right. rendering I'll do of best. that scenario. Okay. Uh, and then we share them with our audience. We'll do our best to describe them to the listeners. Uh, the scenario for today, the 2014 S- the ending level of the 2014 S&P 500, or as David put, predicting S&P 500 year-end okay. levels. That's much more eloquent. Am I up first? I you are up first. 
Uh, let's see what you uh, what you come up with here. All right, so trying to predict year-end, one year in advance, S&P levels. I'm giving that the equivalent of trying to teach a fish how to play football. It's just a waste of time. It's not going to work. Maybe it works. <laughs> but it would be maybe, really cool. Maybe, maybe the ball gets stuck in the fish's <laughs> mouth or something. You'd be like, oh, maybe it worked there. Maybe you can guess it once every 50 years. But to me, it's a waste of time, and the data backs that up, that most of the time it's you might as well just flip a coin. I really want to see a fish playing football now. That's, well, maybe I'll try. I think you should. What do you say? But, but what you're essentially saying here is that it's something really cool to do. Yeah, you can do it. So are you going to cool. predict? Are you well, and it's, one of, those, it's one of those things, too. If you got it right, then you would be, kind of be famous. People would say, hey, you got it right last year. Come back in. If you could t- taught a fish how to play football, so, so they'd what's say, your prediction? That's really cool. I don't, 50. We go to 50. <laughs> oblivion. <laughs> we, 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 have, we have 50. Okay. <laughs> there we go. What do you Morgan. Say? Ready? Okay. What do you got? I don't make predictions very often, but I'm going to do it here. I have, you see here, I have zero on this side and infinity over here. Mm-hmm. And the S&P is going to be somewhere between the two Bold. over the year. You like that? It's going to be somewhere between. <laughs> I, I, I've done a lot of reading and research on the history of stock market predictions and Wall Street predictions. There is literally zero correlation between what people think at the start of the year, the average analyst prediction at the start of the year, and where it ends up. Literally zero correlation. No one has any idea. So somewhere between zero and infinity, I'm very confident in that. You guys are so boring. (laughs) Here's my picture. This is a picture of the S&P going up, going up, up, up. And I've got the number there, 2033, 2033, we got a couple of those, 2033 is about a 10% increase from where the S&P ended this year. I'm with you guys, I don't care about the one year prediction for the S&P 500, but like teaching a fish to play football, it's fun, it's interesting. Uh, the based on the estimates for 2014 uh, S&P 500 earnings per share, that would represent a 19 times uh, price to earnings ratio. Uh, if we get to 2033, the we're basically at that right now based on uh, estimates for all of 2013, and the average going back to 1988 for the price to earnings ratio for the S&P 500 has been 21.7. That's if we take out those big outliers in 2008, 2009, when there were basically no earnings. If we take out 1999 to 2000, when you had all those bubble-era high uh, price-to-earnings ratios, the average is about 19.5. So, Do you have any years left? You took them all out. <laughs> well, it, I mean, when you, when you look back and you're trying to get an average, you look at... Uh, when we look at four, March 6, 2004, <laughs> and we use four, that... 40 times PE levels, 35 times PE fair levels. Enough. I'm trying to be fair, and I'm saying you take out all of those high outliers, and you're still at 19.5. So 2033, that's where I'm at. And you guys can come back Marking and make down. fun of me at the end of the year. We will. No, you won't. You won't remember. I will. I will. That's, that's why it's so easy. That's why this is a great game to play, because like you said, David, when you get it right, People come back to you and they're like, oh, you're a genius. You're so smart. Mm-hmm. When you get it wrong, nobody remembers. That's so, why in, in the punditry, that's what I'm counting in the punditry on. business, it is very rational to make crazy forecasts because no one remembers a bad one. Or to make some and forecast. You're, and you're held up as a genius. Just forecast like everything. The same thing, right? That's, that's what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to forecast everything. All right, finishing off the day, in the Twitter sphere, David, what is our first tweet? First tweet is from our own Jason Moser. He says, it's a nice headline, I guess, but J.P. Morgan getting fined is like congressional gridlock in D.C. Get used to it. And then he tickers J.P.M. there. So this is the, the settlement he's referring to is the Madoff settlement. Apparently close, reportedly close, the, the $2 billion settlement uh, to being official. 
not a big deal in my opinion. They've reserved for this after that big legal reserve they took last quarter. My opinion, the future still looks bright over the next five years for the bank. So not much news here. All right, next tweet. We're going to go to John Borman. Uh, that's at Jay Borman. Tweets, you can bleed about manipulation and how the game is rigged, or you can trade a time frame that removes yourself from the noise. Your choice. I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you are a day trader or you know, you're trading for the next five minutes or five seconds, you are going to be manipulated into bankruptcy, absolutely. If you're, if you're an investor for 10 or 20 years, then you're not. And that's the thing we always talk about, time arbitrage. Your time frame is a lot different than Wall Street's. So if they're manipulating over here, but your goal is way over here, you guys have nothing to do with each other. And there you go. Good idea. I put that one in there for you. I figured Thank that you. would be like catnip for you. I appreciate that, yeah. <laughs> All right, Dave, give us our last All tweet. All right, our last tweet so far, the biggest news of 2014. <laughs> Giant panda cub Bobo? Bow Bow. Bow Bow came out to greet the media at the National Zoo this morning. That is from the Washingtonian. I think we have a picture of it. Do we, do we get the, there it is. There For it is. For those of you listening, I'm sorry, but it's a <laughs> very fluffy panda. We do not have cat gifts on this show, but we have panda pictures. That is so darn cute. Is that, I've no, I've nothing you're not even smiling. How are you not smiling? <laughs> nothing to add. <laughs> Morgan so, hates happiness and cute things. <laughs> so cute. And colors and music, too. Exactly. So, so cute. All right, that's our show for today. Uh, let me re- remind viewers and listeners, uh, go ahead, download our podcast. It's a great podcast. And while you're on iTunes, if you're downloading it on iTunes, give us a rating. Obviously going to be five stars. We're sure of that. Uh, look us up on Facebook. We're Motley Fool Financial. Uh, Motley Fool Financials, is that what it's called? Sure, whatever you want. Yeah, Motley Fool Financials on Facebook. Come and follow us. Uh, that's our show for today. Uh, I'm Matt Copenheffer, David Hansen, Morgan Housel. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.